Okay, well, we continue our study in the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah, again, is very uh, strategic, unique in many different ways we're going to see as we move forward. It's actually a history lesson when you consider uh, what his ministry spans for kings of the southern kingdom. It's going to involve things like Assyria coming down against the northern kingdom. He's going to foretell or predict, prophesy about the coming Babylonian invasion and conquering of uh, the southern, Judah and Jerusalem. And then he's going to, go, we'll look at this in a minute, he's going to even talk about Cyrus and uh, the Medes and the Persians, which is way forward, forward leaning. Uh, but uh, what does the word Isaiah mean? What is that word? Salvation. Uh, yeah, salvation. Jehovah is salvation of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And so uh, this is the most mentioned prophet uh, referenced in the New Testament. Uh, his name specifically is mentioned 26 times in the New Testament. Uh, Jesus opens his ministry by quoting uh, from the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, and we see this in, uh, early out in the Gospels. So all the way through, uh, we see the importance of the book of Isaiah. And last week we ended, uh, the first two chapters are, are foundational. That's why I'm spending a little bit of time on that. And then once we launch into it, we'll go a little bit quicker and, and kind of drill down on specific uh, items. Uh, there's 66 chapters, and I, I certainly don't feel we're going to cover this. We finish this course, God willing, at the end of May, and maybe pick it up in September again. We'll just see how things go. But um, we ended with this verse. Now, it says um, early on in chapter 1 where God, uh, through Isaiah, is challenging the people of the southern kingdom. And that, that is, when you look at Israel, when you look who he's speaking to, you're dealing with nations out here, you know, Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, all these nations, and then as you move closer in, you're dealing with Israel total, north southern kingdom, and then as you go further in, you're dealing with the, the southern kingdom, which of course is Judah and Benjamin, and that's where <coughs> Jerusalem is, and then you come into Jerusalem, and then the focus, of course, is that temple. Uh, if you will. That, that you're going to see that in chapter 2. So if you kind of get that idea, and he's going to pronounce judgment, warning judgment, uh, in a similar fashion, working outwards as we go through uh, the book of Isaiah. But through it all, God, you see God's mercy extended, even when he's given warnings, the prophet of Isaiah, uh, you know, coming judgment, flee the wrath to come. But what is this verse? This is where we closed last week. What does that suggest to you? It, it says in Isaiah that my people do not know me. It says the oxen know their master, the donkey knows his man. My people do not know me. Well, if we want to know about God, what does this verse here tell us about God? Just look at this verse. You remember last week I used that analogy or that picture of two, uh, two cars, one a junk car. Maybe I can get this real quick. Uh, uh, let me see if I can find it. Here, uh, here you have two cars. Uh, but very different. Uh, one is, of course, dilapidated and junk, and the other is new and looks good. And then the snow comes, and then it covers the cars so that you cannot tell which car is which car, uh, which suggests what he says, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The covering, you know, some of us were more junk cars than others when we came to Christ. I'm just saying. But, uh, but with the covering of Jesus blood and were cleansed by the blood of the lamb. What does this tell you about God? If you will, turn to Isaiah chapter 1 and look at verse 18. That's what I have on the board. Come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as well. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken this. This is your, um, this is the consecrate, concentrated verse for the rest of Isaiah, right here. This warning that's given here. What does this tell us about God? These two verses. Whatever. Look at that. Anything that this tells you about God, his relationship with. Pardon me. Okay. There's a coming judgment. Now remember, both John the Baptist and Jesus opened up their ministry basically by preaching a message of repentance. John's saying, repent and flee the wrath to come. This idea that God is just, God is holy, God judges. Okay, there's this judgment phase. What else does this, might this tell you about God? 
Pardon me? He wants transformation. Now, this is very important. Uh, most, all religions are high on information. You know, the, the, the Buddhism, you keep the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path. Islam, you keep this, this, these different uh, things under Sharia. That's different than the God of the Bible. He wants not just information, he wants transformation. Okay, Jesus turns the water to wine, the deaf to hear, the blind to see, the dead to life. Okay, it's transformational. It's not simply informational. Is this, we study, we'll get into this a little bit more, but good point. It's transformational. This is the darkest, some of the darkest dyes or colors back then was scarlet and crimson. But to be changed, to be as white as snow, or to be uh, like wool, that's transformational, is it not? So when it gets to the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about the saints in these glistening white robes. What are they cleansed by? The blood of the lamb. Transformational. Yes, please, Beth. He's inviting, but it's a man response. That's a very good, can you say that one more time? This is very important. When it says come, uh, we're going to look at this. We serve an invitational God. The God of the Bible wants us to come to him. He's not afar off. You have to search for him. And, and I hope I can get it. Or, you know, I'm blinded and there's this pinata up here, a blessing, and I found him kind of. No, he wants us to come to him. And we're going to look at five different verses, Old and New Testament, that tell us about this invitational God. Good point. What else? Anything else? Pardon me? He's reasonable. He, when you hear this phrase, come now, let us reason together, what is that, what picture do you get in your mind about this? Come now, let us reason together. He's, it's, it's almost like a father with a prodigal child, or an errant child, where you say, come here, let's talk this over. Let's, let's, Sit down and talk this over. You're going this way, this way, this way. Come my way. If you change the will, he says here, if you change your will and are obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. There's blessing. There's, there's, you know, Jesus says, I come that you might have life and life more abundantly. Okay, what else? Anything else on the? Yes, please. Okay, right. The idea he there, there, there's definitely this separation that he's calling us. He's calling us from something to something. You know, you'll always see the Lord doing this. He calls them out of bondage in Egypt through the shed blood of the Passover Lamb to the Promised Lamb. Jesus calls us out of sin and bondage to a new life in Christ. Good point. And yes. Okay, good point. There's, there's this equality of sin. What does the Bible say? For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It, it, it's, there's, there's no exception to that, you see. Uh, somebody as well said, uh, the ground at the foot of the cross is all level. You know, uh, there's many ways to Christ. Some come, you know, like C.S. Lewis, just through a good logic argumentation by his friends. Others come on a dark night of the soul in a crisis and, and call out in the Lord. There's many ways to Jesus, but only one way to God, through Jesus. I am the way, the truth, the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. Good, good. Anyone else? Yes, please. He wants us to be obedient. Okay. Before obedient, he says what? Willing. Willing. This is the big issue, is, is, is the turn of the will. That's what is really what conversion means. If you will believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is risen from the Lord and confess you with your mouth, now, it's a turning of the will to God. Uh, it's more than just mindfulness. See, many people know, of, know about God, but do they know God? You see, there's a big difference. It's the idea we turn our will to him, if you are willing. Uh, very good point. And that willingness causes us to walk in obedience. He called, yes, please. Right. <clears throat> Obedience is better than sacrifice. And we'll see that in Hebrews 10, that bullock and calves. I mean, what does that matter? It's obedience. Uh, th th that's the critical issue. And really, as believers, if we declare ourselves to be Christians, our life should look different. Amen? Doesn't mean we're sinless, but we should sin less and less and less and less as we do our walk of sanctification. 
But he puts this here, this caveat. He says, you will eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, that's in the will turning from him and going the other direction, you shall be devoured by the sword. And of course, that's what's going to happen to him. He's living in a time span right now. It's just years before, just a couple of years before the Assyrians are going to come down and take the northern kingdom. They're very vicious when they, they, they crush the Samaria region of northern Israel. They come down, and later he's going to prophesy, they'll come down into the southern, but God will protect you. But again, what he's saying is, you've got to turn to God. He'll protect you, but if you don't, you're going to be exposed, vulnerable, and of course the Babylonians will come down in 586 and, and get the, the southern. Anyone else? He'll do that. Right. We, it's, it's kind of, yeah, we turn to him in repentance. In other words, we turn from walking in our old way. We turn to him as part of that repentance belief, and now we're walking towards him. Uh, you're right. In the sense, we need his empowering to live the holy life. That's why I, maybe last week or the week. Yeah, he cleanses us and says that after that we walk in obedience, which is part of what we call our sanctification, our walk of holiness. But prior to that, that's why so many people think, you know, I share the gospel, you share the gospel, they think, well, I'm going to clean up my act, they'll say. I'm going to quit smoking, quit, quit doing these things. Well, that's not the real issue. All of those are just the manifestations of a sinful nature. Jesus says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. When do you clean fish? After you catch them. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's not real deep theology you got me up here going. But what I'm saying is we tend sometimes to focus on the person's sin, the unbeliever's sin. That's just the manifestation of a fallen nature, do you see? Never be surprised when a sinner acts like a sinner by nature. But when they come to Christ, that, that, that belief and repent, and then that desire to live a now holy life is there. Not only that, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit, guided by the Word of God, and encouraged by fellow believers to lead that uh, godly life. Any thoughts on it? Yes, please. Can you tell me again? Do you have a verse about no one? A little bit. No one searches for God, no one? I, I, I know I'm not. Romans 3? Yeah, what is that? No one searches for God, no one. Uh huh. Well, yeah, nobody cometh to me except the Father draw him. So we're going to come into this later in terms of the sovereignty and election. Even how God is doing it here with Israel, because they're going to be destroyed. But he says, I'm going to leave a remnant. I'm choosing to leave a remnant. Uh, uh, you see, we'll get into this. Believe me, you know, God willing, done. Uh, the more I work with Middle Easterns, I say, inshallah. God willing, you know, you know we could do this. Uh, uh, good. And the other thing here is that God's mercies are new every morning. He's merciful. He wants this. God, in the Old Testament, God says, As I live, it saith the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. New Testament says, God is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but that all may come to... That's the heart of God. You know, Jesus, uh, this invitational... Let me look at a couple of these right here. Here's where he says here, uh, Come, all you who are thirsty, come. See that invitation to the waters. And who have no money, Come and eat, come and buy wine, milk, without money, without cost. This free invitation to come. Uh, Jesus, uh, on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and called out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Do you think we live in a thirsty world? People are spiritually thirsty. We live in a very spiritual time, I think. People are seeking, but where are they seeking to get that spiritual uh, quenching? You know, or that, that spiritual hunger. Jesus says, come to me. You know, we live in a very spiritual time, I think. I call it the Oprah to Chopra effect. People are looking. What, what's the answer to life? What's the purpose? How can I have peace? What's, but here's where you want to come. He can quench that thirst. As he told the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4, if you'll drink of this water, you won't thirst again. 
Uh, he said, come, and you will see. This is the first, second word Jesus says in the Gospel of John. Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they say, Jesus says basically in John chapter 1 to John's disciples, come to me, learn of me. You're seeking, come on, just stay with me, you're going to learn. It's invitational. Uh, this is a famous one in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many have came to Jesus when you were weary and heavy laden? And how many found rest? Better be the same hands up. <laughs> okay, so this idea, invitation. And finally, this is where we actually participate in this invitation. The spirit and the bride. In a wedding, uh, in preparation for weddings, who usually sends out the invitations? The groom? No, they wouldn't get sent out. They wouldn't be stamped. They wouldn't be invited. Am I right? Just that. But the spirit and the bride say come. Three times you see this word at the end of the book of Revelation. The spirit and the bride say come. Let the one who hears say come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And the one who desires of the waters of life drink freely. You see? An invitational God. Any thoughts on this before we switch gears? Yes, please. A little word if speaks volumes. Mm -hmm. be, and I read these important verses. A little bit louder. If. If. But, in the next verse, if and but. That's a big point. Choice, conditions, opportunity, yeah. response, it's all of those things. Again, if there's a free gift, you know, like I always say at Christmas, if there's a a gift under the tree and it has your name on it for God so loved the world that he gave. It has your name and it has my name. We only have really two responses. What might they be? To, to receive it, to as many as received them, he gave the power to become a child of God, or to, re, to reject it, or at least to delay. You see, there's only two choices with a gift. And, and that's why people think, I have to work for it. I have to work for that gift. Well, somebody gave you a really precious gift and you sat down with them and said, I want to work out a monthly payment plan. You'd say, it's a gift. You can't pay for this. It's too valuable. You see, we can't work with it. Afterwards, we're created for good works, but we're not saved by good works. Is that right? Yes, Marie. Can I get a third possibility for that situation? Do it loudly. Well, Paul talks about we could, we could be carnal Christians. He talks about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Or Paul says that, I wanted to teach you or give you strong meat, but you can only handle what? Milk. So to your point, Marie, I do think we are all at different levels of growth in our spiritual maturity. You know, uh, you know there's nothing we can do for our self salvation, but there's everything we can do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit for our sanctification. That's why it gets very practical, like in Colossians 3, where it says, put off the old man. And he gives this catalog of lists of, 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 of gossip, fornication, licentiousness. He goes, that's for us to put off, you understand? And then to put on the new man. You know, there's, there's, there's these instructions that are very practical for our growth and maturity in Christ. Yes? To your point. Anyone else? Okay. Let's go now in Isaiah. And this is where he's going to start pronouncing some judgments and warnings and Chapter 1, he says in verse 24, Therefore the Lord says, The Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Notice we're going to hit these different titles God uses in Isaiah. A mighty one of Israel, but the really repeated one is going to be the holy one. The holy one of Israel. We'll see that over. Uh, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteous, the faithful city. Notice here he calls at the end of 26, faithful city. What did he call that city in verse 21? Harlot, unfaithful city. See, he, he, he goes through this range. He's very poetic. Isaiah, if we were to graph out some of the structure of these literary devices he uses, but he starts by saying, Oh, the faithful city has become a harlot. And that is a word used in a kind of a, 
a marriage metaphor when Israel departs uh, from the only God, Jehovah God, and his ways, disobedient, and he goes after what? False gods. You know, the Canaanites, the gods of the Hittites, all these different, we're going to see in a minute, the, the idols and all this occultic uh, stuff. And he says, what, what book is given to this whole thing? What book in the Old Testament is, is given to this whole, huh? Hosea, with his wife Gomer. You know, she departs, and the Lord says, marry her again and bring her back in. So, but you see here, God is saying, verse 21, faithful cities become a harlot. He deals with them. Judgment's coming. Uh, he kind of describes what they're like, you know, verse 21. Uh, he says, one time righteousness lodged. You were full of justice. But now, verse 21, you become murderers. Your wine is mixed with water. You're rebellious, companion of thieves. You love bribes. And then he pronounces judgment, but the judgment comes to restore them. You see, he's always... God is moving in a restorative way, even though he's going to use uh, harsh ways to get there. If that really, literally bringing enemies to come down. And so then you pick it up here, uh, verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of the transgressors and sinners shall be together. And those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. Very similar New Testament language there. Uh, for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees that you have desired, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. What's he mean in verse 29? We're going to expand on this in a coming class. But what's he mean there? The terebinth trees and the gardens or groves. Isn't that where Right. Exactly right. We're going to see this. He's going to expand on this in later chapters. But terebinth trees, when he says... Uh, and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen. These were the, uh, used to work a lot of the idolatry, the sacred groves, the high places. Uh, and he's going to expand on this, even in chapter 2 a little bit. And we're going to see a big problem that Israel had. At this time, are they a religious people, according to earlier in chapter 1? Yeah. yeah. What have they been doing? Earlier chapter 1, what did it say they were doing right? Oh, they were doing their sacrifice, keeping holy days. Um, uh, they're doing all of these kinds of things that are religious, but their heart is far from God. You see? Now, they're not, not only is their heart going to be far from God, and they're involved in murders and bribery and treachery, and they're not helping the widow or the orphan, but now these occultic and idolatrous practices are going to start sliding in. We're going to see that. And he says, okay, um, then he says, and you shall be as the terebinth whose leaf fades and as the garden uh, so he's, he's, he's predicting uh, what's going to happen here. Now remember, when you, the Old Testament, when was Bible chapter and verse introduced into the Bible? Does anybody know approximately? Around 1200, it went to chapters by a man named Langston. But then by the 1500s, they, they had it into verses. Because Old Testament and New Testament were not chapter and verse. You see, that was, it was a scroll. You know, so there was no break with, uh, you know, this is the second chapter, third chapter, 15th verse. You understand? So it flows into the second chapter here. And that's where he says, the word that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now he, the, he, he, gets, he says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Many shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. Now here's what Isaiah does. It's really kind of interesting. When he prophesied, if you have a prophetic, there's a timeline. He has what's called, his, he, prophesied, he prophesied in what's called near fulfillment. In other words, just years from his prophecy about Assyria coming down and capturing the north, it's just a short ways off, right? And then he prophesied about when Babylon's going to come down and take the southern kingdom. It's going to be like 150 years later. <clears throat> when he's actually prophesied that, he's not, Babylon is not a major big power, certainly can, but it will rise up. And then he prophesied when the Medes and the Persians will come in, and Cyrus, and then uh, they'll get the uh, decree they can go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. That's what we studied last year, right? That's what he left. But then he's going to prophesy about a coming Messiah the virgin birth, 
and all, everything related to Messiah, Isaiah, God himself, and then he's going to prophesy to the end of the age. Elect. You, you understand? The, 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 his, his prophetic range or scope is incredible. I mean, it really, really is. When you study, when you study what these prophets saw and probably didn't fully understand, according to Peter, they, uh, they, they saw things and maybe didn't fully understand what all that meant, but they were prophesying what is called near, future, uh, but also distant or remote. Any thoughts on that? Yes, please, John. Yeah. 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 These early chapters. Maybe next week I'll break it down and outline for it. These early chapters. I think up to about twelve. It's pretty localized, you know. And then he reaches out further, uh, particularly when he says the Babylonians are coming. This is going to happen. You guys, they're going to scorch earth basically. But then when we move one to thirty-nine, is really pretty judgmental. It's, it's pretty, you know, this is what's going to happen. When you get to 40, it's, it, it introduces the suffering servant. It's more conciliatory. It's more what's we coming. And then when you get to chapter 65 and 66, you're talking about a new heaven and new earth. You're talking about the lamb lies down with the lion, although the one doesn't sleep that well at night. But I mean, you know, you got all this kind of reconciliation and restoration. But we'll do that. That's a good point, John, because there is... Here's the thing. It's just like the book of Revelation. We think everything follows chronologically in a straight line. But when you study prophecy, sometimes what they do is they loop back. You know, it's going along. Like we're going to see, when does he get his call, or introduce his call? Chapter 6. But already, he's talking prophecy here. The same way with Revelation. Sometimes you read along. We won't get into too much of that. But sometimes John gets the Revelation, and he's talking along, we think, and then he like loops back and expands on something. Then he goes forward and then he loops. Do you understand? Same thing here. But there is a general outline. Yes, Joyce. I've heard it often described as a mountain range. When you look at the mountain range, you can't tell which mountains are full and which are bad. Mm. And then a lot of prophecy, the closer you get, you say, well, that, that's farther, or this one's closer. And yet, when you're looking at it, it looks all the same. Yeah, you don't see the valleys. In other words, they see the peaks. They're looking out like this, and they're seeing. And again, this is what distinguishes the Bible uh, from any other holy book or resource book. Uh, they cannot have the prophetic. They do not have the prophetic. I, I've challenged Buddhists. Um, today we're meeting with a group of Middle Eastern people, to include Muslims, that really want to know the Bible. And I, and I say in a nice way, look, the Bible is the only one that, that is predictive. They tell you history before it happens. You know, and that's unique. That's a good yeah. Beth. Yeah, the prophetic is... is, is that that's, a, that's a very good point. When you get the Bible, even, even Jewish people that they'll believe in the Messiah, they, they, you still, they deal with prophecy. How can these things happen? Because, again, these things are being told uh, a thousand... This is 700 years before the birth of Christ, the time of Christ. But you go to the Psalms of David, you know, like Psalm 22, 110, all these things, the Messianic, that's a thousand years. You see, but... Only God can tell us something. He's out of space and time. He can tell us what's going to happen from the beginning. Let me give you an example. If you just keep a place here and turn to one of the oldest books in the Bible, the book of Job. It comes right before Psalms. But look at Job chapter 19. I mean, this, this book is old. I mean, some dated to the time of Moses or prior to. It's, it's just, but look what, what he, he says here. Um, Job. Uh, verse 19, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 19, verse 23. Job 19. And now remember the, the scope of this guy's prophetic vision, what God has given to him by the Holy Spirit. 
He says, verse 23, Oh, that my words were written, oh, that they were inscribed in a book, they are, that they were engraven on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. Do you think he wants to record what he's going to say? I think it's pretty important? Yeah. Okay. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Now, remember, that title for God, Redeemer, means somebody that purchased back, brought back. My, he, I know, I don't think so, I hope so, I don't pray so, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth, there he's coming to earth, after my skin is destroyed, this I know. He's saying what? After I'm dead, long gone, that in my flesh I shall see God. So what's he saying here? He's seeing the general resurrection at the end of the days and that his Redeemer's coming back and he's going to stand on the earth. And that his, his, Job's body, though long since consumed and decayed, is going to be, he's going to have a resurrection body so that he can see it. For he says, whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another, how my heart yearns within me for this. You see, I mean, how, many, how many thousands of years out is that? that this guy is seeing. I mean, if I could predict who's going to win the Super Bowl next Sunday, I'm presuming it's going to be the Eagles. But, I, you know. <laughs> but if, if I knew the final score, the MVP, and the temperature at, at the kickoff, and put that in a sealed envelope, and you open it the following day, and, you, and they were all true, spot on, would you think I was a pretty good bookie? Or, you know, yeah, you know, you think three things five days out, or one week out, five Three, four things, predictions. How about 300 predictions, 500 years, 700 years, 1,000 years? Who knows how many thousand years? What must God do to convince an unbelieving world? And for believers, I believe to study this strengthens our faith. And it realizes when we share the gospel, we have such a strong source of authority, how firm a foundation, as the hymnal said, to share and that's why when you share it with the gospel, from this standpoint, you don't have to worry. You know, you know it's, not, it's no longer an argument. You're not going to generate a whole lot of heat. You're going to generate some light. And don't worry if you don't. Somebody said to me, I, I don't like to witness because I may not know the answer to a question. I said, well, just say you don't know the answer to the question. 2,000 years in Christendom is going to come collapsing down because you don't know the question on that day. This thing stands firm. Yes, please. Yeah, I'm not sure if I should. Um, hold on, hold on. A little bit louder. I'm not sure if I should hold off on this question until after class, but what, what is it when people, I've heard people say that, that the book, the prophecies relate to the, the Old Testament prophecies relate to the New Testament because mere mortals have created it that way. Am I making sense? That's an argument I've heard with non-believers. Oh, sure, it's easy to take the word of the Old Testament because they've been manipulated. Well, a couple things. I hate that. Yeah. I'm not sure. My, my only knowledge is that I have faith, I believe it's the, the divine word. But if you don't have that divine belief, then how do you go from there? Did everybody hear the question? She's saying, if I understand correctly, that the Old Testament is the Testament. Louder, George. Well, yeah, you see, Christians did not write the Old Testament. We realize this, right? We, we, we didn't bias that book in any which way. Why? Because it's a finished volume 400 years before the coming of Jesus Christ. There's that, that Inner Testament time or the Maccabee of that. And then at midway, it's translated from Hebrew to Greek. We call it Septuagint. But we didn't bias and influence that book, like going back and, you know, trifling with it, so to speak, to make it work out. But, I mean, what you're dealing with is, is that person has the, he has to make the case. I hand people the Bible when they say that. I say, show me where this thing has been manipulated. Usually they don't because they haven't read it. But, I mean, if you go with it, we know something happened in that first century. Even critics of Christianity and cynics will say something happened in that first century to take this little group of people, they weren't even from Jerusalem, they are from Galileans and that, and it explodes. It basically takes on the Roman Empire. 
and three, four centuries later, the Roman Empire is going like this, and Christendom is going like this. Why? And then you backtrack it. Is it historically situated? Are the places that references history? Who's the proconsul? Yes. Uh, what's the reason they should fabricate this or lie about this? Oh, let's let's all get together, plan this. It's going to cost us our lives, and we're going to be in prison. But let's do this. You know, Chuck Colson say he knows the New Testament is true for this reason. When the uh, Watergate conspiracy went down, when that whole thing went down with Nixon and that, he says there was 10 of us in the White House, John Bean and Ehrlich Minow, and we conspired together that we're going to keep this thing a secret. If we don't tell anybody and really keep it locked down, we're going to get through this. You know how long that conspiracy to keep this thing secret lasted? One month, when they got John Dean on the hot seat. It all collapsed. How can these people keep this thing alive if it's costing them their lives, they're being persecuted, they're being imprisoned. Doesn't it make more sense what they're saying is true, that they met a risen savior? It didn't matter if he got killed. Do you understand? So that's another subject, but it's a good But we, if we walk it backwards or if we walk it forwards, I think you can put down enough proof. Can it all be proven? No, there's still always an element of faith. There's always an element, but it's an element of faith for atheists too. Okay? Yeah. Yes. Well, what the Dead Sea Scrolls did, 1947, they were discovered, Shepherd Boys, just south of Jerusalem. The nearest manuscripts they had, scrolls, were almost a thousand years after the AD. You know, that's, they had them in museums in Turkey and different places. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, they were dated almost 200 years before Christ, 100 years before Christ, the time of Christ. And then when they looked at the book of Isaiah, which they found a full scroll, and every book of the Old Testament, partial or whole, except the book of Esther, they found out it matched with our Bible today, which tells you there was no changes. There's little textual things in commas and this and this, but there's no essential change. So if we needed validation, we got it with the Dead Sea Scrolls. Not that we needed it, but I mean, there's extra proof. Yes, please. Yeah. Well, what you want to encourage people to do is, is, is look at it. That's what Paul was doing when he went, he was looking to, to, to create conversation, to create and just present his case. If they received it, great. If not, they didn't. Uh, but uh, people's misconceptions is amazing. I remember a good friend of mine's an atheist. He went through this whole dialogue why he didn't believe in God. I said, I don't believe in that God. You don't believe in either. I don't know who that is. <laughs> but I mean, you know. If you can walk them through, if they're willing, the key is the heart. The key is the heart. If they have problems in their mind, intellectual or something, you can kind of walk them through it. But if their heart is turned against God, if you say, look, if you see enough evidence that there is a God and Jesus Christ was the Son of God, would you accept it? If they say, if you could, then that's one thing. But they, if they say, no, I would never, then you're dealing with the will. You understand? That's, that's a whole different issue. Okay, Isaiah. Now, um, now this is now it says it comes to pass in the latter days. Now he's, he's got this long prophetic viewpoint. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills. All nations shall flow to it. And this is where and then he introduces this thing: for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, uh, rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. Where do you find that today? Where is that today? That very quote at the United Nations. See the, the sword, he's beating it down the plowshare. The problem with this, it's a noble goal, but without the Lord, until the Prince of Peace establishes peace, you're not going to have peace. You know, it's, it, it, we should move towards peace. Don't get me wrong. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called. But um, it comes right from here. But what it says previous to that, when it says the mountain of the Lord, mountains oftentimes in the Old Testament in particular were a metaphor for governments or kingdoms or nations. They will be exalted up on high. They will be exalted. 
And this is now talking about the kingdom of the Lord will be established. You know, there's a coming day uh, when we pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. See, Jesus is king of kings. Jesus was declared to be a king at his birth by Gentiles, no less. Remember the kings of the east, uh, wise men came. Where they say to, they say to uh, Herod, where's this king of the Jews? He goes, king, where's this? You know, he was declared by a Gentile at his death to be king. When Pilate says, put this above his cross, he said, the king of the Jews. You know, Jesus is the king. It's just what it is. And then one day, his kingship, his reign, will go over all the earth. Everything will be put under him. Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus... Do you understand that? Is it there now? No. It's in, it, just like Isaiah speaking to this rebellious people then, this world is not God-friendly. Amen? It's not under the will of God. There's pockets, communities, what we call churches, that seek to come under God's will, you see, and then pray in that prayer specifically for ourselves. Thy kingdom come, thy, where? In my life, Lord, you reign in my life. Your will be done in my life, in our community, in our church, you see, because one day it'll be ultimately fulfilled. It's near and far. Does any, any thought on this? Do you kind of get this concept of what's going on here? But the Bible is full. Well, you have to understand kingdom language. Uh, to understand Old Testament, New Testament. That's why Jesus talks about the kingdom of God so much. You know, he's bringing kingdom. Yes? Okay, I'll show you how this plays out. Look at Daniel chapter 2 for a moment. Daniel chapter 2. Now, this is this incredible vision Daniel gets. Um, he's in Babylon. This is when these guys were taken that Isaiah's prophesied about. And he goes, he goes in front of Nebuchadnezzar because he has this incredible dream. And um, he asks Daniel what, what it's about. And he, Daniel says in Daniel chapter 2, verse 22, about God. Um, is, is, well, 21 says, he changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Oh, thank you and praise you, O oh God, my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might. Uh, you have made me known to me what we ask for and what the king demanded. And so he has this dream, but what he basically is dreaming about is kingdoms. It's in a, it's in a dreamlike, symbolic thing. But he says in verse uh, 21, I'm sorry, 31, you, O oh king, were watching and behold the great image. The great image whose splendor was excellent stood before you and its form was awesome. The image head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze. Now all of these are um, historical kingdoms. Uh, the head is gold, the, the chest and arms of the Medes and Persians. We won't get into that now. Uh, you have the Greek empire, the legs of iron, the feet of iron and clay. Rope. You watched well, now verse 34 is, is very important. You watched while a stone was cut without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together. It became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away and was not found. And the stone that struck the image became a great what? Mountain and filled the earth. What is the little stone cut without human hands? Christ. Okay? If we were writing this story, we probably wouldn't have God coming into this world, born in a manger in a little place called Bethlehem. He's the little stone, not cut with hands, not human hands. But that little stone will one day grow and his kingdoms will be over all the earth. Do you understand that? This is interspersed throughout the Old Testament. Do you how many have studied this before? This coming kingdom like this and how it's in Old Testament fulfilled in Christ? Well, we will. I'm just saying, that's what we're going to do. Okay, so we're going to pick up on this, but look at some of the things. He says when he comes, that's the famous phrase, and of course that's at the United Nations today. Um, uh, he'll judge between, they'll beat their swords into plowshares. I, I, I find it interesting that Jesus is the, 
Nobody can, come, can accuse Jesus of using military might. You know, when I, Marie and I work with a lot of Middle Eastern people and Muslims I've talked to. There's no getting around it. Muhammad is called the prophet of the sword. Was he always violent? No, but he's called. But when Jesus says to, he's standing in front of Pilate, he says, if my kingdom was of this world, my followers would do what? They would fight. The other time, he tells Peter to do what in the garden? With a sword. Put the sword away. Put the sword away. We need swords today. It says that in Romans 13, because we live in a rebellious, fallen world where governments and civil authorities need to, you know, first responders and military. But don't get me wrong, but nobody can ever accuse Jesus or the church for the first three centuries of being militarized. No way. Yes, please. Good question. Let me ask you this. Can, can killing be justified? Huh? Freedom is not free. Uh, was, it, was it William Payne? Who said that the tree of liberty is, is, is nourished by the... must be watered from time to time with the blood of tyrants and patriots. It is its natural manure. Good. Thank you, Steve. Okay, got that. Uh, the expanded version. Um, the Bible is not pacifistic. I, I don't know, sometimes people get it wrong. Um, we are living in a fallen world. From the beginning, Cain and Abel, there was, there was murder, you know. All through the Bible, uh, there is some form of bloodshed. It says in Romans chapter 13 that civil authorities carry the sword against who? evildoers. In other words, they're invested. Even Jesus before Pilate says, he, Pilate says, don't you know I have the power to what? To release you or kill you? Do you remember what Jesus says? It's very telling. He says you would have no power at all except what? It was given to you from above. Okay? It's a big topic. But without some kind, I mean, when you look at the flood, how many people did God save and how many people you think God destroyed or killed? We don't know the numbers, but we do know he saved eight. The, uh, oftentimes, people have a strange version of the Bible. With the, now, it's moving us to a little longer. When, when it's finally set up, what we're looking here, one day all that stuff is over. One day Satan is bound. One day even the cosmos, the created order, are restored. Literally, animals in, in terms of re restoration. Not, no more red blood, tooth, and nail, as William Blake said. Men, women, I mean, there's this whole thing is going to be changed, restored, almost like at the very beginning of the first creation. Does that make sense? But in this interim period, blessed are the, are the peacemakers. We should be people about peace. I mean, just to make peace within relationships. Forget national war. I mean, just within families. Or, am I right? Friendship, churches. Just to be peacemakers there is really godlike. It really is to extend and receive forgiveness. I don't know if that answered your question. I have a way of kind of going on. Okay. Somebody else had their hand up about that? We'll pick up on that too, because when it comes down on Israel, it's coming down. And when the Assyrians come, if we look at some of the descriptions in the Old Testament, they were cruel. I mean, they really were. Same thing with the Romans when they came in and, and scorched earth Jerusalem in 70 AD. It was, it was vicious, you know, what happens there. Yes, please, Joyce. In Exodus 20, 13, my version, yeah, murder is different than killing. That's a good point to bring up. Uh, yes, please. So is it safe to say God's nature is not violent, but because we're working with the fallen world right now, I think to understand God, where he says, my people don't know me, remember early on in Isaiah? I think we have to understand God fully in all his attributes. God is, is merciful, God is loving, God is kind, God is compassionate. But he's also what? He's just, he's righteous, he's holy. Uh, he, he warns people like he does here, you know, come let's reason together that you not come under the wrath. So would a, God, would a judge be just 
if every criminal that came before him said, I'm sorry, you know, murderer, thieves, all these kind of things, and the judge just left him go, would that be a righteous judge? No. See, we, we have to balance this, you know, this quality here with God, these qualities here with God, and kind of, they're held in some tension. You know, if you look at the Old Testament, I mean, even the New Testament, what does it say? He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son shall not see life, but what? The wrath of God abideth upon that person. That's real. You know, that's, you know, that, the Bible says that. It wasn't made up in the Middle Ages by some monks that were really stern and politic, you know. Yes. The only thing I can figure out is in the Old Testament, everything that went wrong required a sacrifice. So with all the wrongs that were done by all the countries and Israel kept falling, they kept giving all these sacrifices, whether it be war, bloodshed, whatever. And at some point in time, the New Testament comes and Jesus says, no, I'm going to be all of that. I'm going to take care of that. So well, there's always the shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, what? There's no forgiveness of sin. There's always going to be the shedding of blood. I mean, in a sense, we sit here today, free people, with Bibles in our own language, because somebody, particularly like, let's say, the World War II generation, went off and shed their blood for our freedom, right? Well, Jesus is the one that ultimately shed his blood that he says, whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But that required a price. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. So, yeah, you're right in that sense, but we're still in this valley. You know, you have creation, you have new creation here. There's the bookends, Genesis. We're in this valley of the shadow. We're in this redemptive place right here now, this fallen world. But God, somebody once says, well, why doesn't God do something? You ever hear this expression? Well, my reply is God did something, God is doing something, and he will ultimately accomplish that something. You see what I mean? He is doing it. He is working in our midst today. Yeah. Actively. Actively. His time frame. It's his time frame. You know, but, but we cooperate with that. You know, we, we cooperate with that. He's called us to be, we've, we've got this, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that we've been given this ministry of what? Reconciliation. We should be reaching out. We're going to talk about this later. And trying to reconcile, by God's Holy Spirit, people to God. You know. Yes, please. I heard a lady say, I don't like the Old Testament, it's so violent. <laughs> and one example is when God told Saul, wipe out the Amalekites, wipe them out, everybody, the whole thing. Wives, children, cats, dogs, sheep, cattle, the whole thing. He didn't do it. Had he done it, we wouldn't have the book of Esther. Because Haman, who wanted to wipe out the Jews, was one of the surviving Amalekites. Yeah. So God, you know, it's... He had a reason. Yeah, God has reasons, right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the scripture clearly says, look, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And, and there's, there's things of God and his ways we don't fully understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things of God belong to him and him alone. But the things he has revealed, he's revealed to us and to our children. I'm happy to say there's three generations of Murthas. I got me, I'm here, my son and daughter are there, and my little grandson named John Michael Murtha is sitting back there. So we got three generations. But that's the power of the gospel to go down to generations, you see. That, that's, sometimes we don't realize we serve a God of, of, of small beginnings. He starts the little rock, the little stone that was cut off. Starts small. It starts with you. It starts with me. It radiates out to our family. It radiates out to the community, to Bay Presbyterian Church. It radiates out. You know, one candle, lit candle, could go into a room of a hundred unlit candles. Light every one. Walk out, and he was lost nothing of his flame. You know, we're called to be those lights. Okay, I'll start wrapping it up here. Uh, now he says this. This is very interesting. If, if you would read chapter two. Um, for next week, and, and we'll get into three also. Verse five says, O house of Jacob, come and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Very important point. Again, you see this idea, come on, let's walk in it. For you have, for you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with, now look at this, 
eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is full of silver and gold. There is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. Their land, there's no end to chariots. Their land is full of idols. They worship the works of their own hands. That which their fingers have made, people bow down, and each man humbles himself. Therefore, do not forgive them. Now, we've already established that this is a religious people, right? It said that. What does this tell you now about this people that Isaiah is speaking to? They're wealthy. What else? Pardon me? They're worldly. What else? Yeah, they're, they're, they're proud people. They're, not, they, they're beyond religion. What are they getting into now? Divination. Divination, sorcery, witchcraft, the ways of the East. You see that? We're going to pick up on this. The other thing is, how about militarily? Are they strong? So who, if you look at this culture, this society, what would you say about them at this time? Just from a worldly point of view. They're clicking. I mean, they're moving forward. They're strong militarily. They're not worried about invasion because they have all these chariots. They, they're prospering. Uh, not only that, they got all these new age ideas, Eastern thought and all this other stuff coming in. Wow, we have all these kind of, and we're producing silver and gold, and we're making all this stuff with our hands, and we're basically worshiping this stuff rather than God. You understand? You see, we'll stop there and pick it up next week. But do you see where man is? Notice the silver and gold. This will be a recurring theme. I want to close on this, but turn to uh, Revelation. I've got to find this. I think it's Revelation chapter 18, what the, what the, the, uh, uh, what the great uh, uh, fall of Babylon. Yes, it's chapter 18, and we'll close on this. He says, uh, this is the end of the age. We, 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 God has brought his wrath. Now that's more cosmic. It's more, it's, it goes way beyond what Isaiah is talking there with Israel. But notice he says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, verse 20, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged her. And the mighty angel took a stone like a great millstone, threw it down to the earth, and it hits basically Babylon or the world system. However you want, we're not going to interpret that right now. But it says, verse 22, now look at this. Um, the sound of harpists and musicians, flutes, trumpeters, no, heard no more. The craftsman, any craft can be found. All industry is now stopped. In you uh, shall not be heard. Uh, the light of the lamp shall not shine in any more. The, bride, the bridegroom. Uh, for your merchandise were gone, the great men. And he goes down and he, 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 he says all of these things that we're looking at back there have now been destroyed. And there's great weeping here. But look at how this, the merchants of the earth, uh, same chapter, verse 11, it says... Um, and the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her, for no one buys their merchandise anymore. Verse 12, what's the first merchandise, the first two merchandise products? Gold and silver. What's the main, used to be, backing our currency worldwide, was what? Today, gold and even silver. And it goes down this litany. Gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, scarlet. I mean, this could be like eBay or Amazon on steroids. Every kind of citron wood, every kind... And marble, cinnamon, incense, fragrance. What is the last thing in chapter, in the, at, at this list in verse 13? The souls of men. Notice that. The first thing, silver and gold, this whole listing material, the last thing of any value was what? The souls of men. What did Jesus say? What does it profit a man? In whole world, but lose his soul. So next week we'll pick up on that. If you study chapter 2, we'll pick any final... Questions or comments on any of this? Yes, please. I can't hear you. Yeah, when you get here, it's it's. It, you know where it says, "Work what is yet day, for night cometh not." When you get this far in Revelation, what God's doing on the earth, it's it's end game. I mean, it's 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 altogether different in a sense. What's happening here? Right. Well, I think the thing you have to cling to is today is the day 
of salvation. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. And we live like that because every day, what does the Bible say? God's mercies are new every morning. It said, in a sense, every day has, God has a welcome mat. You know, come unto me. Now, Howbeit, I agree that it's a mysterious process because God must draw and there's cooperation. But uh, every day, I mean, in a sense, the word of God is going out worldwide today, like never before. We'll talk about that, but it's like never before. And I think it's hard because every, this world is forgive everything, no matter what, forgive. You know, uh, if you don't believe in the truth, then, you know, but what about this person? What about this exception? But there is truth, and, and we have to realize that God has given us all this time, and yeah. there is going to come an end when his judgment will come. Yeah, we, we are living in the space of God's long-suffering right now, God's patience, as it will. All right, who would like to close us in a word of prayer, please?